Welcome back, my friends. This episode is arguably one of the most impactful and significant stories and journeys I have been honored to share on this podcast to date. And so I really cannot emphasize enough how honored I am to bring this to you all. It's one of those episodes that I encourage you to listen on normal speed. Uh, I know sometimes even I listen on one and a half or even faster. This is one that you really need to take close notes and attention to because there's so much here that can impact so many people. I recently watched a documentary called Bleed Out. I was invited by my dear friend, Alicia Decker, who is a fellow pharmacist. Actually, I went to pharmacy school with her, so we've been friends for quite a while. We're going on multiple decades now. And I thought that it sounded intriguing and it sounded like a story I really wanted to know more about from a patient advocacy standpoint. So I clicked on the link and registered, having really little to no idea what I was getting into. And as I watched it, I had a very somatic, very emotional response to it. I reached out to the director and son in the actual movie, Steve Burroughs, on his website, not knowing if I would receive a response, not knowing if that email actually is read by him, but I just put it out there and hoped for the best. And a few hours later, a pharmacist colleague of mine on LinkedIn reached out to me unknowing that I had sent that email. And she reached out to me and said, thank you for sharing on LinkedIn about this documentary. Basically, she worked alongside Steve and wanted to know if I was interested in sharing his story. And of course I said, absolutely. I already reached out to him and long story short, we connected and we scheduled this interview you're about to hear. And it leaves me speechless, which I know is not the point of being a podcast host, but it really does leave me speechless on so many levels. So rather than trying to put any words to it that don't need to be placed because you will feel your own emotions over this story, I'm going to expedite getting right to it. But the summarized story is that Steve Burroughs was a comedian and filmmaker, and that was his role. He did not have a healthcare background. He had some, as he explains in the episode, some interactions with the healthcare system, but nothing necessarily life-changing until in 2009, his mother, Judy, who was 69 years old at the time, fell while riding her bike and was rushed to the hospital for hip surgery. She ended up having a second surgery because the first was failed. And during that second surgery, she lost half of her blood volume, half of her blood volume. The reasons for that will be made clear in both the documentary and in this interview, but ultimately she was left to be in a coma, suffering permanent brain damage. She later did pass away, but the years that followed ended up being a very difficult road that Steve did an amazing job documenting, not knowing at the time that that would become a documentary, but he was documenting it. And it is now a story and journey we can all learn and benefit from. And so I am joined today by Steve 
and by Sujin Jen, who was the pharmacist that reached out to me on LinkedIn. I think this conversation is valuable beyond words, so I will be quiet now and allow you to listen. Here's Steve and Sujin. All right, I am so honored to interview two amazing people. And just the way that this has all transpired is synchronistic in and of itself, but I'm really thrilled to be on this specific episode with Steve Burrows and Sujin Jun. And we have some really powerful things to talk about, specifically focused in around Steve's journey with his mom, Judy, and the healthcare, uh, I want to say journey. It was more of a crisis. It was more of uh, it. Well, it turned into a documentary and that documentary is bleed out and you all should watch it because we're going to dive into a lot of belief systems, transformative thinking, um, a lot of things on this podcast that really require you to have already watched it. So I would really encourage everybody here to watch it. And I will put in the podcast details where you can watch it, but it needs to be watched. So I'm going to preface this with that and uh, we will get started. So thanks for being with me, Steve and Sujin. It's great to be here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, really great to have you. So Steve, let's start with you. And I'll have both of you introduce yourselves because I find that when there's a polished introduction by somebody else, it doesn't really capture who the person is. So I always actually prefer, if I can, to have the person introduce themselves uh, in whatever flavor they would like. So Steve, go ahead. I'm Steve Burrows. I'm, uh, I am I was a comedy guy uh, in Los Angeles, um, making a fool of myself for a living for about 25 years and film, television, commercials, theater, as a writer, director, performer. It was all about the laughs. It was all about comedy. It was a, it was a, a great life. Um, I, you know, I, I, I basically have no other really skills. Uh, you know, I couldn't get a job almost anywhere, but I could always kind of tell a story and, and make people laugh. And so my wife and I, we loaded up the truck and we moved out to California uh, all those years ago and uh, things took off. I, I was able to, uh, get work immediately as an actor for 10 years. Then I became a writer. Then I became a performer. My first TV show I was ever on was Seinfeld. Seinfeld gave me my break, um, specifically Jerry and Larry David, um, and uh, made a, a comedy feature for Miramax called Chump Change. I, I had these great uh, comedy legends in the in the film, Tim Matheson, um, uh, Abe Vigoda was in the movie, from The Godfather, uh, we had uh, Ann Mir and Jerry Stiller were in this thing, Fred Willard. Um, it was just one of those things where I, I my, my producer said, write a funny script and we're going to get funny people. And I, I, I tried to write as funny a script as possible. And they came. We, we just had a ball making this movie. And then um, my mom uh, went in for a routine partial hip replacement back in 2009, back here in Wisconsin. And uh, she came out in a coma with permanent brain damage. And like everything stopped, just, it was like, it was like a switch. And I became her power of attorney. Um, wasn't sure what had happened. Uh, her surgeon was a family friend who uh, I completely trusted. And no one could explain to me what was, you know, why this, this, you know, brain damage is not a known risk factor for hip surgery. And, um, I had an uncle who was a doctor and an aunt who was a nurse who joined me in Milwaukee. And uh, I officially became power of attorney. And they started looking 
uh, and they had me get the medical records. They started looking at the, the records uh, of my mom's surgery. She went in, for, it was supposed to be a two hour operation. She it lasted six hours. We found out that she lost over half the blood in her body, that her, her uh, hemoglobin had dropped below 5.1, which is coma slash death. Um, I would have never known any of this if I didn't have some family members who were, were you know, medical people. My uncle looked at this particular anesthesia record, which was a handwritten record of my mom's surgery. And he noticed that the, uh, my mom had lost over half the blood in her body. And yet her blood pressures maintained a, a perfect 120 over 80 for six hours. And he said, these are fake. And I'm like, I was still trying to process the fact that a doctor just told me my mom was in a vegetative state. And now my uncle's telling me that this thing, you know, is, is uh, dirty. And, uh, you know, it's, it's still, you know, the, the most, uh, cataclysmic influential moment of my entire life because everything changed. And I was now, my mom's life was essentially in my hands. I was, I was not, not medically, but I, you know, I was, I was her voice. She couldn't speak for herself. So, you know, I, I was scrambling, um, and, you know, I had, I basically had three plans, not even at that time. The, the first, once I found out this, that, that there was medical malpractice involved, um, well, the, the, these were the basic three plans. The first plan was take care of my mother, you know, get her the best care possible. I didn't know she was going to come out of the coma. We had no idea if she was going to live a month, a week, another day. Uh, so it was always do what is in my mother's best interest medically. And then once we found out that there was medical malpractice involved, it was like, how do we get any type of accountability or justice? And in the, at least in the state of Wisconsin, you know, for whatever reason, uh, all of my mom's caregivers and the doctor and everything, they all just shut up. They, they stopped talking to me. So the only way I could, my only resort, my only way I could get any information about what happened to my mother, even to find out who the hell was in charge of my mom's care. Who was the doctor in charge of my mom's care? I had to get an attorney. And that stinks. That is no way for any of this to go down. And then, so that was plan A was take care of my mom. Plan B was, uh, you know, try to get her justice in court. Uh, and that would be a seven year journey in itself. And then plan C had, it was a distant plan C at the time, but in the middle years of this kind of decade long siege, I started to uh, think about maybe making a movie about it. Um, and that's, we ended up, I shot a movie on my iPhone, uh, went undercover uh, multiple times as well, because the people who were telling me one thing privately to me were not saying the same thing in court under oath. And who's going to believe me? Nobody's going to believe me. So I had to, you know, I, I, I recorded people. Uh, I didn't do that lightly. Um, and then uh, we were fortunate enough to get this little ragamuffin homemade movie on HBO. It's been out for almost five years now, and it's been seen by 20 million people. And and it's been uh, the best thing about it is it's been embraced by the medical community, which was a big surprise to me. That's kind of my deal. Um, very powerful. Very powerful from Seinfeld on. Obviously, very powerful from from a healthcare standpoint, which is why Sujan and I are here, and we'll talk about the synchronistic events that led Sujin to you and me to you and uh, how all this worked out, but such a power, I mean, such a powerful documentary that was largely based on 
your need to document on cell phone. Like you didn't have an intention to make this into anything other than what do I need to do in this moment to protect my mom? And for all of that to turn into what it has, which is really a movement is amazing. And it's really a beautiful, a beautiful way to celebrate your mom's life and the legacy that she's leaving by teaching, teaching the system what it needs to know. So Sujin, from a chronological standpoint, I still am not totally clear when you, when and how you got involved. So first go ahead and introduce yourself and then kind of take me through that timeline. Sure. Um, so I became a pharmacist after um, I lost my father due to medication event. At that time, I was a wedding videographer, um, did not have any healthcare background. And my dad was a foreigner um, from South Korea. Uh, he was diagnosed with esophageal cancer and had a complication of diabetes at the same time. And he was prescribed insulin and he was on sliding scale insulin. Um, and, you know, he, he couldn't eat. So right there, that's a red flag for any healthcare professional, um, especially for pharmacists um, who's listening and you are a pharmacist, so you're very aware of the danger. And um, he had multiple hypoglycemic events that led to um, emergency department visits and um, he was so distressed. We planned for a medical trip to go back to South Korea. And all of us, including my kids, were going to go. And one week before our flight, he passed away. Mm. So that became a pivotal moment for me to um, really think deep in what I'm going to do here. Because um, I, at, at that point, I did not even know that was the cause, possible cause of the death. Um, what I was so frustrated was all the gaps experienced, all the um, miscommunications and um, reprimands from the surgeon to, the, to my father and all these things that seemed to be misaligned uh, was my motivation to do something to change healthcare with very naive but very passionate motivation. Um, and uh, I jumped into pharmacy because I felt pharmacy was a bridge between the doctor and patients. And I felt the need for that. And um, yeah, so that's where my journey um, in healthcare started. And after um, I became a pharmacist and I was just so eager for change, I did multiple things while in school, um, like creating business plan and um, hoping to, you know, start my own business um, after I graduate. And that didn't uh, flourish because um, I got pregnant. <laughs> so um, after that, I realized I was only at the tip of iceberg for any meaningful change in patient safety. So I began speaking up about my story and began meeting other advocates and activists. Uh, and while I was doing that, um, I thought it was my uh, cultural background and language barrier. Um, I mean, of course they were part of the barriers of getting the optimal care, but I began meeting people who did not have any barriers like I did, no 
perfectly educated, perfectly well-spoken, um, and they were experiencing medical harms in front of their eyes. So I met other advocates and, um, and Steve and I are part of this whole group of patients for patient safety US. We are the patient safety activist group. But how I met Steve was during my uh, master's program um, at Northwestern for Healthcare Communication, where I met um, Dr. Tim McDonald, who's who was a guest uh, lecturer for um, an apology program that uh, medical system can adopt and apologize to patients who have experienced medical harm. And um, I, I, we were chatting and he's um, suggested me applying for the summer camp program, and which I did. And this is where I met Steve um, as I was a Northwestern student, but also I was an Aurora healthcare employee, which none of the attendees knew uh, about that. This is the place, uh, just to let everybody know, this is the place what. Where, where, where my mom suffered her injuries, this, this, uh, Aurora healthcare. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you were a student, but also an employee of that healthcare system. Okay. Yeah. And so you were, you found out about the story or you were introduced to Steve by, by Dr. McDonald or what? No, you... no. So we went to the, so I was at the camp. I had no idea about this movie was something that happened at my hospital. I knew something there was some announcement at my work, but I did not know it was this movie. So um, it was a it was a surprise when um, it was a surprise to me, but also um, to the attendees of the program, they did not know I was from Aurora. All right. So you met Steve and you, of course, were emotionally invested in the story because you have lived this with your own dad, obviously different details, but you've lived what healthcare, how it can go wrong. And so you've kind of formed an alliance, kind of walking the journey in, in the ways that you can with the strengths uh, that you that you each have. Okay. So Steve, let's go back to I think you did a fantastic job of painting the picture of sort of your life before all of this, which was very far removed from the healthcare system, clearly, and comedy and, um, you know, just an amazing, an amazing journey, but definitely not heavy in healthcare. Before this happened with your mom, what amount of engagement interaction with the healthcare system did you have? I mean, other than like bumps and bruises, was the healthcare system kind of like something far off in the distance or did you have interaction with it before? You know, I, I actually had uh, quite a bit of uh, interaction with it. Um, my wife, um, Margot, she has M multiple sclerosis. So when we met, uh, we met at O'Hare airport, literally actually 36 years ago today. Well, congratulations, and anniversary of meeting. <laughs> and she had uh, multiple sclerosis and I, I I felt bad for her. I wanted to help her. She was doing relatively well, but uh, she told me all the different things that she went through. We, we, we were married a year after we met. And at one point she was really struggling. Um, 
we were at the point where we were looking, she was, you know, having braces on her legs and, and, and canes and crutches. And we were actually looking for wheelchairs. We, we thought, we thought this was, I mean, she was going down very quickly. And um, for some, this, this is another story, but she also, uh, she had to have a hysterectomy uh, for completely different um, uh, re reasons, obviously. And for whatever reason, when she came out of this hysterectomy, almost all of her multiple sclerosis symptoms went away. Mm. This gynecologist told us he can't prove it. There's no data on it, but he had spent 40 years as a gynecologist saying that he felt that there was some connection between the women's uh, reproductive system and multiple sclerosis. And for whatever reason, my wife has been relatively healthy with multiple sclerosis ever since that surgery. She has her ups and downs, but it went from uh, it went from the kind of you know the the progressive you know downhill situation to more progressive remitting type of you know stop and start kind of stuff. So we 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 and she also had she had multiple eye um, surgeries. So we were she had she was chock full of uh, healthcare issues. Mine were more. Uh, I, I want to say I don't want to say mundane because they were actually ridiculous stuff. Like I had a I had to have a triple hemorrhoidectomy. Uh, I've had st stupid things like you know black hairy tongue and kidney stones. All these all these ridiculously you know stupid yet you know real things that I've had to go through. Um, but we my, between my wife and I we felt that we had a pretty good handle on things. Uh, generally, we we didn't have anything that was like crisis life or death, nothing like that. So we just dealt with issues the way that most, most people deal with them. And, uh, and, and, you know, then when my mom went down, it was like, Oh boy, this we're on, this is now red flags fully up and we are in over our head, you know, swimming through, you know, trying to navigate the waters of treachery through the American healthcare system. Yeah. Okay. So your experience was definitely more than bumps and bruises, but, but nowhere near the extreme that you were about to face with your mom. Before we get into, into your mom's story, and I actually want you to introduce her too, before we get into some of those details, um, what would you say now looking back were some of your belief systems around the healthcare system thoughts around it? And maybe they were subconscious because, you know, you, you had a relatively, um, average-ish journey where nothing in for, as far as crisis happened, but, but, um, you know, a lot of people have generational or cultural or, um, otherwise belief systems in that, um, you know, something like the doctor is, is the all knowing, right. And so I, if I ask questions, it's disrespectful. Do you, have you identified any belief systems that you maybe had prior to your mom getting sick? I had that one. My, my grand, my mom's, my mom's, uh, father and her two brothers, we're all doctors. When I was born, the, the doctor that took care of me was my grandpa, you know, all my original shots and all those original, you know, all, you know, he was, he was my pediatrician and, you know, he was like this hero to me. Same with my uncles, my uncle Tom and my uncle Ted, they were radiologists, but they were, you know, they seemed like to be all knowing they were godlike, you know, they were, they were the pedestal, right? They, I mean, they went to medical school. You know, you could talk to them about anything and, you know, hey, I've got this, I've got this rash and they would have a good idea or, you know, Margo's got this thing going and they, you know, they, they, they'd always have something 
up their sleeve, they point us in the right direction. These, these were like invaluable. I, 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 I didn't question anything. You know, it was like, they, they went to school, they're doctors, they are all, you know, grand almighty omnipotent people. And I'm going to do exactly what they tell me to do. I don't question anything. And my belief system, prior, even going through all of the stuff that I went through is if the doctor says it, I, I would never question what a doctor would ask. I would be so, I would be horrified. I'd be embarrassed. I remember with my ass doctor during that, uh, you know, my hemorrhoidectomy stuff, Margaret would say, you got to talk to her about this stuff. I'm like, I, I, I can't. She knows what she's, she's the ass doctor, not me. I'm, she says this, I'm doing it. And that was the way it was up until, you know, 2009. Mm-hmm. Really powerful. And I, I know that the people listening are going to connect with that because that's the truth for many. Before we dive into your mom's story and your introduction, Sujin, do, did you have any assessment or identification of similar types of belief systems with your parents and your family? Yeah. So I, I did say about the sliding scale. So if you, it, for the audience who doesn't know what sliding scale means, the doctor would give an order that you would adjust the amount of glu- uh, the insulin that you would give to the patient, um, depending on the glucometer reading. So you would test the patient and depending on the reading, if the reading is high, then you would give certain amount of insulin as directed by the doctor. And I religiously follow this. But if you remember, my dad had esophageal cancer, who couldn't eat, who couldn't drink much, and that will lead to dehydration and that can elevate blood glucose and give a false reading, false high. And when I inject the insulin, he would crash and we would have to go to ER. And the two weeks later, the same thing happened, same hospital. Um, you know, same treatment, same people who are showing up at the ER. And, you know, our country does not have a mechanism to alert the system that there's something wrong with this patient. Um, So that was, I mean, I trusted, like Steve, I trusted 100%, maybe even more than 100%. And that was, that was the biggest mistake, really. Um, so sliding scale, you can't give a direct, it's so dangerous. I mean, when I see sliding scale insulin, I, you know, try to convince the doctor, this is not a good idea. Um, at least have a glucagon prescribed. And this is also very rare. Um, if you kind of look through the patient's, um, records and profiles, people who have glucagon prescribed are very, very rare. So um, I do, I did have similar experience like Steve in that way, but I also had this internal um, conflict within me because Aurora Hospital merged with um, Advocate, which was the hospital that where my dad was and um, was mistreated at the hospital. So before I attended at this camp where I saw Steve's movie, I already had something internal in me that was kind of feeling uneasy about this merger. So that's something that I also wanted to kind of bring up. Mm-hmm. If I can 
And uh, real quick, uh, Claudia. Yeah. The one thing that really connected, Sue Jin and I actually, we experienced a profound moment, like a life profound moment. And what it was, was at this boot camp for all these med students and stuff, we screened the movie. We had no idea who was there. Um, the movie does what it always does. It, it does all the heavy lifting. And then we have this Q&A session. And this young woman stood up, turned out to be Sujin, stood up by herself. And at one point, could not stop crying. And I'd never been in a situation like this because there was 100 people there. You know, people had questions, but there was something this was everybody was upset about what they saw in the film. But this woman, there was something going on. And she said that she was her name was Sujin and that she actually worked at Aurora. I'll never forget when she told everybody that she worked at Aurora because there was a hush over the entire crowd. Mm -hmm. They're like, God. And I'm and I'm 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 like, what? Aurora? Oh my God. And Sujin was so genuine and so loving and you know what she did she did she did something that day in that moment of her profound sadness in front of everybody she did the one thing that has still never happened in the 14 years this, this happened to my mom from aurora sue jen apologized wow sue jen doesn't she doesn't have to apologize she didn't do anything but she instinctively in front of everybody and the second she apologized in front of everybody, to me, of all people, like she, I, I knew I love this woman forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've, we've also gone on to receive hundreds of thousands of apologies from care, healthcare providers, doctors, nurses all over the world. But Sue Jim was the first. Amazing. And there's right there. Boom. It, we, we just had this thing and uh, you can't really put words on it, but it was so visceral and so palpable. And she was, and she's the real deal. You know, she's the real deal. Sorry to interrupt, Sujan. No, no, no. <laughs> I felt I felt so compelled to do that, and I I knew that was something that that the family and Steve needed to hear. Mm -hmm. So that was the least I could do. It's amazing. It's amazing that somebody who had no involvement, no even understanding of of this entire case, but but just the association with the institution where it happened and also the depth of emotion since she had also dealt with something similar with her dad. And, and it's from that just deep humanity that we like, we want to say sorry. And also insane that the medical system isn't open to that. Isn't medical staff are taught the opposite and we'll get, we'll get into all of that, but I do want to first give space and time to you introducing your mom, Steve, Judy, tell us about her, who she was before this happened. Like, I kind of want to know all of the, the beauty and dynamics of her life before uh, this crisis happened. Well, my mom, Judy uh, was, she was, you know, uh, she was an exceptional woman. She was a single mother. She raised two kids by herself. My sister and I, she was a, special ed school teacher. She's taught in the inner city of Milwaukee at uh, two of the roughest schools that have ever, <laughs> these are rough schools, hard, hard, uh, uh, just families and kids in, 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 in trouble. And she had the special ed kids. 
and there was just something about my mother that she just had this, um, uh, I, I don't know, this kind of je ne sais quoi way about her. She was just able to, she was um, one of the most empathetic people that I've ever met. Uh, she always was able to, and she taught my sister and I this, um, she was always able to instantly put herself in the shoes of someone else. There was like no judgment. This was her greatest, I think, attribute as a teacher. She was just able to see the big picture and figure out a way to help in the small, you know, she was micro and macro, which is very difficult to do. Um, she didn't have a lot of luck with, you know, my parents divorced when we were very young. She was always looking for love and uh, was very sad for the middle years. Uh, a decade or so, she was really um, deeply, she was just sad. She just wanted to be with somebody and she just wanted a little house with a little picket fence. And a friend of hers uh, one year said, Judy, let's get out of here. Let's, let's go overseas for the summer when she had the summer off. Let's go to Turkey. And she said, Steve, I'm going to Turkey. I go, Turkey, what, what's, what, what are you doing in Turkey? Like, what? I don't know. Okay, I don't even know where Turkey is. <laughs> came back from Turkey that first year I picked her up at O'Hare Airport and she came back and my mother was in love. She was in love with Turkey and she was in love with a particular man that she met in Turkey. His name was Ramazan. And she went back to see Ramazan every summer for 20 years. Wow. They had, they had this... I mean, there's no other way to say it. It's, it was just a torrid love affair. I mean, it's just the way it was. And I've never seen my mom happier than when she came back from, from uh, Turkey. It, in fact, I encouraged her at one point, do you, maybe you should, you know, move there, you, you know, or have him, have Ramazan come here. And But they had their thing. And it was, you know, we, we have a little sequence in our movie where, I, you know, I discovered all these photos of my mother with this guy and you know, he's this good looking guy in a swimsuit. He's wearing a Speedo most of the time. <laughs> uh, but she was so happy. And uh, that was the first time in her life where I think her, her personal life and her, her professional life kind of sunk up. And she did everything right. You know, she, she, because she was a single parent, she, she saved her money. She didn't take sick days. She never took a sick day in all those years. Wow. At Milwaukee Public School, she saved them all up because she could get, she knew she could get credit for them at the end. Mm -hmm. And she she pinched her pennies and she had a 50-year life savings. She had a full pension, Social Security. She had a, a really good savings. She House was paid for. Car was paid for. Boom, she went down. And she lost every penny she saved in 50 years in less than two years, paying for her care that for the injuries inflicted upon her. Um, she, she eventually for your audience who doesn't know, she did come out of the coma. She, uh, was severely, uh, she had severe, uh, brain damage with the executive functions. She had the, her IQ dropped from 120 to 60. She had, she was basically like an eight-year-old kid. She had no perception of her disabilities. So she thought she was fine. I can drive. She couldn't drive. She couldn't get in a car. She can't move her legs. I can walk, but she can't walk because if she gets up, she falls. You know, it was like Groundhog Day every every hour, you know, but she, you know, for, for all of her disabilities and all of her, you know, horrible, endless parade of all of the different things that were shutting down in her body because of this original brain injury, like her bladder and, you know, all the bathroom stuff, 
you know, my mom somehow never lost her sense of humor, which was really a surprise to almost all of her doctors because, you know, that's that's some deep cognitive thinking there. But she never lost her sense of humor or her will to live or her will to go home. She always wanted to go home. That was her thing. I want to go home. I want to drive. I want to go home. And my goal for her was to, you know, win our lawsuit so we could afford to bring her home 24-7 because she needed 24-7 care. But she was a, in the end, my mother was a teacher. You know, that was her, she was a mom, she was a teacher, and she was a, a just a really kind person. Mm, beautiful, beautiful tribute to her life and uh, amazing ripple effect I'm sure she had on education in general and the changes that she made in the lives of the students that she was in charge of. So your mom was all of those beautiful things. And then she goes in for hip surgery and she initially fell and broke her hip. Correct. Went in for the first hip surgery. Yeah. So there there were two hip surgeries. The first hip surgery, she was riding her bike. You know, she was told to not ride her bike. My mom was you know, a lot of people see this movie and they see her all, you know, a little bit like, you know, I used to see doctors. They see her as this, you know, almost near perfect person who didn't make any mistake. My mom was just, she was as vulnerable and as human as all of us. She made plenty of mistakes. And one big mistake she made was getting on a bicycle uh, that she knew she shouldn't be riding. But my mom was very willful and stubborn. And she says, you can't tell me. I told you, my, your doctor said you can't ride that bike. She goes, you can't tell me, Steve, not ride a bike. I'm not six years old. I'm not your kid. She goes and rides the bike, falls over, breaks her hip. So she goes in and her doctor, his name's Dr. Bauer. He's well known in our movie at this point. He did this surgery and he kind of did this uh, old fashioned fix that never really held. And what we would later find out is my mom literally was walking around on a broken hip for five months. After the surgery. After the surgery, every, everybody, nobody knew it except for her doctor. I, fl- I would fly back every month from California to take her to see this doctor. And he'd say, well, it's healing, it's healing, you know, and uh, we will just keep doing therapy and water aerobics and stuff. And, and this thing was still broken. And my mom eventually fell again, which led to the second surgery. She was on three blood thinners. Uh, she sat in the hospital for eight days with no plan of care. I know that sounds crazy, but... I mean, we went through the HBO lawyers when I, because I, when I said there was no plan of care for eight days, all the HBO lawyers said, you can't say that unless it's true. And we proved it. That was the fact. She laid there on drugs with no plan of care for eight days. I got on a plane after, and this is my big regret in my life. Why did it take me eight days to come see my mother? And I'll tell you why, because I trusted the mm-hmm. doctor. That's what I was going to say. Everything was okay. And then finally on day seven or eight, I'm like, something ain't right. I show up, I call the doctor. I say, I'm here. He goes, oh, you're here. Oh my gosh, I'll operate tomorrow. I go, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. what about the Plavix and the, the Lovenox and the aspirin? He goes, I've never had a problem with Plavix. No, you're here. Your mom's in pain. She's been sitting there for eight days. And I felt this, you know, there was a rush to surgery. But once again, what did I do? Trusted. Trusted the doctor. And she went in and she lost over half the blood in her body. And that's all she wrote. So I don't think I realized that she was also on Lovenox and aspirin. So Plavix, Lovenox and aspirin sitting there for eight days when that could have been held in anticipation of surgery, but that wasn't what happened. And so now suddenly we need to go in what appears to be urgently and without the need to hold any of this. 
when she went in for the first surgery, she was also on Plavix, but not on Lovenox and aspirin or what? Okay. Plavix and they actually, um, I got to get this right. Um, Cause she also had two knee surgeries prior the year prior with the same doctor and they went fine. One was on Plavix, one wasn't on Plavix. Okay. So in my head, Plavix was like, okay, I don't know. But my aunt and uncle were telling me as we got to the bigger surgeries, Plavix, we got to hold that, you know, we, and if you're going to keep her on Plavix, if it's truly an emergency surgery, which is she's laying there for eight days, it's not right. Was an emergency surgery. They do, they do surgeries on people with Plavix all the time, emergencies, but you got to have blood. You got to have enough blood because mm -hmm. there's blood and you got to have platelets and she did not receive any platelets. Wow. Wow. Okay. So we're on three blood thinners going in urgently for a surgery that didn't clearly need to be urgent or emergent. And the assumption was she's going to be fine because she was fine before on Plavix. And so apparently we're just disregarding the other two and the cumulative effect of all three of those. If I can just add one more thing that I wish we would have made a bigger deal out of this in the movie, but you'll understand, both of you will understand this is my mom had this, the first hip surgery, there was like a 12 inch cut on her hip, right? So when the surgery had failed and they had to go in and now they were going to do a new, uh, they're going to give her a new device, a more modern device, rather than this Frankenstein thing that they had. So they get in and they cut her open the same 12 inch, you know, um, cut while she's on those three blood thinners. And they have trouble getting that hardware out mm. because it's all up now because she fell again. And then once they get it out, they realize they can't get the new hardware in, in the same cut. So they do another 12 inch cut. So my mom had two cuts like this side by side on her hip. And this is the reason that she bled out. This is the reason for the title of the movie. And I, I, you know, we mentioned it briefly in the opening of the film, but now that I'm talking about it with the two of you, Oh my God. You know, that was two cuts. She was looking blood from two cuts that were 12 inches long. Wow. That was really, and, and, and no platelets. For some reason, they decided they weren't going to give her platelets because the anesthesiologist would, would, would say under oath four years later, he asked my mom if she wanted platelets and she said, I don't want any platelets. Like, wow. Oh. And why would she, she didn't have any like religious or otherwise objection to that. Why would she say that? My mom wouldn't know a plate platelets from a plate of fries. Well, when he said that, I'm like, oh my God, the fix is in. I can't believe this. He actually said, even the other defense lawyers in the room, when the guy said it, they all started laughing like, whoa, that's a whopper. Wow. Wow. Um, there's, there's just so many points here. Just even going back to the first surgery, why wasn't it done mechanically the right way to begin with? And then the need for the second and the disregard for the bleeding implications of not only the fact that we know that a second surgery in the same location in a short amount of time is already a risk for higher bleeding. Now we've got two incisions, three blood thinners and no attentiveness to, to what's going to happen perioperatively and preparing for that. I mean, yeah, uh, that that's all of that is terribly shocking. And for most of the population that trusts the physicians, there would be no reason for you to, understandably to question that. Like clearly the surgery is your thing. Uh, you know, comedy is your thing. I got comedy, you got surgery. We got these two things. And, and, and that's unfortunately they don't. And so, so take us through your mom. You, the, I think the, 
the one really important point, and I'm going to really encourage everybody to watch the documentary because I don't want to have to go through all of the details, but the one really important point here after that is the ICU and how the ICU was managed. So um, clearly after losing half of her blood volume, ICU was the reasonable next step. What happens in the ICU that um, also is shocking to you? So they, uh, the doctor and the anesthesiologist uh, somehow stabilized my mom after these uh, six hours. We're not sure how they did it. Uh, medical people understand that they feel like they got her vasopressors, these things that keep things going or keep um, just to get her stable up there so they could get her to the ICU. There was no, um, uh, there, there was no, the, anyway, they take my mom up to the ICU. There was this young nurse, uh, a rookie nurse. She'd been a nurse for three months or so. She was called in that night. Uh, she was not supposed to work, uh, but there was a, you know, an ICU patient coming in. So did, uh, the surgeon and the anesthesiologist told this young nurse, 23-year-old nurse, that my mom had lost a little bit of blood. That's the quote, a little bit. Not half the blood in her body, just a little bit. Now, what does this nurse do? She does the same thing I do. The doctors tell us what, okay, a little bit of blood. So she's figuring it was a little bit of blood, which means she's not concerned. So in this a unit in this intensive care unit overnight, my mom's blood pressures drop repeatedly to deadly levels, 60 over or 90 over 60, 60 over 40, 50 over 30, 40 over 10. It kept tanking. At one point, there's no blood pressure, Wow. right? We don't know this until I get the medical record several days later. Um, and this was telemetry. So it wasn't like the handwritten uh, records. Mm -hmm. in surgery. These were, these were real, uh, blood and she, she, uh, when we're like, whoa, what? And then we found out that these are like deadly blood pressures and then the hemoglobin's 5.1. So once we started asking questions after it was determined she was in a coma two days later, which by the way, I'm jumping ahead, but no one noticed she was in a, a coma for two days in the ICU. I found her in a coma. What do I know? Nothing. So anyway, I'll back up now a little bit. They take her to the ICU. The blood pressures drop repeatedly. They give her some uh, thing called bolus. Uh, and we and once we find out that my mom's in a coma, we wanted to talk to the ICU doctor who was there that night, the bedside ICU doctor. And they said, there, there aren't any bedside ICU doctors. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is the intensive care unit. My mom's in a vegetative state. We want to talk to the doctor who's in charge of my mom's care. They said there wasn't any. It was just a nurse. And they had replaced all the bedside doctors at the intensive care units in the system with a system called the EICU, the electronic ICU. And in my mom's case, that meant there was one doctor out by the airport, Milwaukee airport, who was watching on monitors, four monitors, watching patients with cameras that we were later told were not on due to patient privacy. That doctor out by the airport, the electronic ICU doctor had replaced the bedside doctor and she was literally watching. We would, it took us seven years to figure this out in court, but they would admit under oath on camera that this one doctor was watching 160 critical care patients like my mother with cameras not on. That's insane. And I'm, what is the, yeah, this is really one of the major, major reasons we made the movie. When I found, about, found out about that, not only were we like horrified, like, you, I mean, you got to have doctors in the intensive care unit. Well, a lot of hospitals are are farming them out. They they don't want to pay them, so they'll they'll pay one doctor to work an eight hour shift, and they'll have nurses there, who are the surrogate doctors who are taking orders from a doctor who's not there, with cameras that aren't on. 
So they're basically just responding to a nurse saying, hey, this patient's crashing. But at no point did that, did your mom's nurse report that your mom's crashing? It, we were just documenting, or she wasn't even documenting the blood pressures because telemetry was documenting it for her. Well, at one point, the nurse, I think, did call, uh, you know, there's like a button, apparently. We, it, it was never clear what, the, you know, the camera was never on, you know, because it's, it's right in the room, right? You could see it in the room. And we feature it in the movie. And you would think, okay, there's a camera in the room. And if there's, in the, the way they sold it, the way Aurora sold this system, this EICU system, they said it was cutting edge technology that in, the, in, in if there's a change in a heartbeat in a millisecond, they, they're on it like that. But, but they also said in writing in their pamphlet that I found in the drawer in the room, it said, this does not replace the bedside doctors. This is a backup system. This is a secondary system. But in my mom's case, it was not a secondary system. Mm -hmm. It was primary system. It was the only system and the only doctor anywhere near my mother that night with those near fatal blood pressures was a 23 year old nurse who did not know. I mean, she was set up for failure. Wow. Wow. Sujin, do you have any commentary on this EICU? I have, um, in my time in pharmacy and in clinical care heard of, I've never worked at smaller mm -hmm. hospitals or rural hospitals. I've known of those types of hospitals to employ this type of system, but it's never been something that I've agreed with. Um, I don't know. I don't know what size Aurora is and if it's considered rural, but what do you know of this EICU implementation? It's huge. <laughs> I am not really um, well-versed in EICU per se. I, this was the first time I saw that um, when I watched Steve's movie, because I'm in pharmacy. I don't necessarily, I worked in outpatient pharmacy, so I don't necessarily know what goes on in inpatient side. So it was really shocking. Um, even like small hospitals where I work at, we have doctors there. We don't have EICU. So I don't know if it's because it's a larger system. I mean, or it's like the largest system in Wisconsin. Wow. So um, it's, it's very scary and it's spreading like wildfire all over the country. So, I mean, so, you know, you and I are actively in healthcare and we, I've never actually seen it. I have heard of it at smaller hospitals. Aurora is the largest hospital system in this area and they're utilizing this system is just it's beyond imagination to me. Um, mm -hmm. And clearly that physician who's on the other end of a screen cannot effectively handle 160 emerge. Should all of those patients crash or even a small percentage of them, there's zero chance that physician's going to be able to effectively manage that. So that's insanity. Um, okay. So at what point, Steve, at what point were you told or or were you not? When were you told that she had lost half of her blood volume? Like what point were you communicated with about anything that was going on? Nobody told us anything about losing half the blood or body. That night when we talked to the surgeon, uh, he came down and talked to me and my aunt and uncle. And my aunt and uncle were very nervous because they they were they said six hours is way too long. But uh, Dr. Bauer had told us that the surgery went good and that mom was upstairs and he only put her in the ICU uh, just as a precautionary measure because it was it was late at night and he told us to go home and get sleep wow right so uh that's you know that's exactly what we did even my uncle ted and aunt cindy a doctor and a nurse trusted that particular uh story at that time so the next day uh, you know we went up to the ICU and my mom did not look good. She never, she never woke up. And uh, there was a bet. There was a doctor who showed up uh, during the day who was kind of there for a while. And 
And she's also featured in our movie uh, under oath saying things that people you, you just will not believe. But anyway, she was the one that told me, she said, Oh, I heard you're, on, I heard you're a comic. I heard you're on Seinfeld. I love Seinfeld. And I kept saying, well, what about my mother? Right. You know, my mom's supposed to be up and walking around and she looks like she's not good. I mean, Oh, she said, she's just foggy and groggy. That was the whole company line, foggy and groggy. And I bought that for a full day. And then on the Friday, the next day I came in because they told me to go home and get some sleep and everything's going to be fine. And I'm going to come back and my mom's going to be eating soup and singing songs and it's going to be wonderful. And I came back and my mom looked dead to me. And I just had this gut feeling that, I mean, I knew my mom needed me and everybody else was business as usual. And I saw this doctor, I, she saw me come in and she kind of ran away from me. And I, 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 you know, I, I followed her and we got into a pr pretty heated discussion. I said, I want to know why my mother's not awake. Everybody's telling me my mom should be walking down the hall right now. And, and she is, and she said, well, do you think there's a difference between yesterday? So well, yesterday she looked like she was in a coma today. She looks like she's dead. And she said, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to get a, a, a neurologist? And I thought that's, that's really what set me off. She said, do I want a neurologist? And I'm like, why are you asking me this? But I said, yeah, let's get one in here. Guy comes in. He's there three minutes. He says, I'm sorry. Your mom's in a vegetative state. We hope she wakes up. She might not. And I look at this other doctor. I said, foggy, groggy, vegetative state. And I knew I was in trouble. I mean, I knew I was, I called my aunt and uncle. I called my wife. I called my father. I said, I am in deep. You know what? I don't know what I'm doing, but mom is dying. I need help. And that's when we, that's when the cavalry came in and I became power of attorney and got the medical records. Hence our original conversation about them being falsified, medically impossible, by the way, this is not just me talking smack. This is defense expert witness doctors on both sides at our trial, all agreed that my mom had unprecedented levels of blood loss and that the, the records were medically impossible. And that's when I knew, okay. And then once, once I found out about the EICU system, I thought I'm learning things here that I, I, I need to tell people. Like I, I, I say this all the time. I didn't really want to make this movie. I needed to make this movie. When I heard about the EICU system, this movie was going to be made. I mean, I had no choice. I have to tell people, regular people. And, and I will tell you, Claudia, when we screen this movie, I always ask, we screen this movie all the time for me at medical schools, nursing schools. And I, it's a room full of doctors and nurses and medical students. And I always say, has, has anybody heard of the EICU? And nobody, no one knows what I'm talking about. I mean, I'm it's like, just... I don't know. Right. How are patients supposed to know to ask that prior to, so if something were to happen during surgery and I go to the ICU for any length of time, is it going to be a person or is it going to be a, a you know, a screen with a person who's watching 160 other people? Nobody's going to know to ask that. Those of us in the health, medical system don't even know this is going on. Um, it's, it's shocking on so many levels. I know a huge takeaway from this is the issue of transparency in the medical system and the issue of accountability. So let's talk a little bit about the transparency. It's shocking to me that at no point anywhere in a, in a reasonable timeline were you told that there was this amount of blood loss and 
what the complications of that could be. So you're seeing your mom like, okay, I don't think this is right, but you also didn't have the background to know that it probably isn't right because I know what happened during surgery. You really didn't know. You just know she knew she went in for a second surgery. So talk a little bit about just this lack of transparency of the physicians, one of which was a surgeon who apparently was in the like in your both of your lives for a while, this isn't just somebody walked off the street, regardless, that still would have been wrong, but even more shocking than it wasn't. So what what was your sort of insights about the lack of transparency? You know, back then, I, I, I didn't, I, I was so confused by things because, you know, the surgeon was a family friend. And I just, you know, I, I had, I had put doctors in, in hospitals on pedestals, and all of a sudden, no one was talking to me. Like, they wouldn't even look at me. I was, it became adversarial, instantly. I didn't make it adversarial. Once my mom was determined to be in a coma, all of a sudden the walls went up, the wagon circled, and there was like no communication. And I was having trouble just getting, they wouldn't even talk to me until I became power of attorney. And they questioned whether or not I actually had the right papers. And of course I did, but um, people were very, very careful with me. Um, And I just said, I kept saying, I want to know who the doctor was in charge of my mom's care. And no one would tell me this. I mean, this is like basic. Who is it? Is it the surgeon? Is it her primary? Is it the anesthesiologist? Is it the ICU doctor? Is it the ICU doctor out at the airport? Who is it? No one would talk. So we were forced. The only way that we could get any type of transparency and accountability was to go get a lawyer. Now, who can afford that? Who has the time to do that? And the the medical malpractice lawyers will tell you because they lose 90% of these cases and they only take the very best cases like my mother's case. They don't have time for questionable cases or even ones that are clear, but you know, who's going to work for free on a contingency free for seven, eight years, um, knowing that you're going to lose 90% of the time. Yeah. That's what you're up against. So, but I stuck with it because this, this, I wanted to know what happened and transparency and accountability was so important to me. And if, if, if the court system was the only way I could try to get it, then I was going to do it. That was, that was my, I'm going to stick it out. Well, in a, you know, in a, in a normal humanistic world, um, how would you have rather this played out? Like what, what, you know, if we were just all being humans to each other and they didn't feel the pressure of whatever of, you know, of them losing a lawsuit or being blamed or losing their job or losing their home. And we didn't have any of that. We're just human to human. How could this have played out in a much more humanistic way? You know, uh, at the same boot camp where I met uh, Su Jin, uh, they, they now do this role playing thing where they have a, a doctor talk to a, like a patient or their family like me. And this one woman, her name is Gwen Sherwood. Uh, she she pretended to be the hospital. This is in front of all medical students, right? This is last year. And this was like an option of maybe this is how it could have gone. So Gwen sat down with me as, you know, the representing the hospital back then. And she said uh, to me, and I'm going to paraphrase her. She said, you know, Mr. Burroughs, I'm so sorry to tell you that your mom uh, has had massive loss of blood. Uh, there's been... Um, Turns out she was on Plavix and Lovinox and aspirin, and we did not play this right. We should have weaned her off this stuff. This was not an emergency surgery. This was a complicated surgery, but we needed to wait. Um, We did not do that. And uh, your mom's in a coma. We don't know what's going to happen to her, but I can guarantee you this. Whatever happens to her, we're going to take care of her. 
And we are going to learn from the mistakes that we made and share those mistakes with everybody involved and everybody not involved so that it doesn't happen again. And by the way, if your mom survives, we're going to make sure that she is as comfortable as possible. And you can ask us any questions and we're going to tell you the truth. And you know what? If I can't give you the right answer right now, I'm going to come back and get that answer for you. We're not going to lie to you. We're not going to bullshit you. Because it appears that everything in your mom's journey was preventable. Everything, the first hip surgery, the second hip surgery, the Plavix, the Lovenox, the ICU, the EICU. We got a system here that clearly did not work for our hospital. It did not work for your mother. And we are going to do everything we can to learn from this. And we are going to be accountable for your mother. Now, if that would have happened, something like that, how long did that take me to say? I mean, it it's like you're saying it. I'm getting goosebumps because it's like it seems so reasonable that that's what would happen, but it doesn't happen. That conversation, maybe it took two minutes of, of, of me to say that, could have saved 14 years. Mm-hmm. Could have saved not only everything that happened to my mom and our family, but all of the doctors and nurses involved. Think of the think of the all of the good things that could could have come out of this by a conversation like that in the moment. And there are hospital organizations out there that do exactly what I just just did. And Gwen did a much better job of it <laughs> than I just did playing Gwen, playing the doctors back then. But I, I can promise you there would have never, if, if someone would have been straight and honest, because I guarantee you I've heard from hundreds of thousands of patients and families due to uh, bleed out. And we all want the same thing. Mm-hmm. Just be straight with us. Number one, be kind because we are now in trauma and unbelievable stress. We're scared to death. So be very kind to us. Number two, tell us the truth. And here's number three for me. Don't lie. There's a difference. You can tell the truth and not lie. Don't lie because once you lie, that trust is gone I mean, certainly with the people that I was dealing with back then, it was gone forever. I knew I could never trust these people again. And it's taken me a long time to come around to be able to trust medical people again. It could have all been avoided. It was a bad situation. This was human error. It was not intentional. You know, uh, Sujin and I have learned this through through all of these uh, wonderful uh, doctors and nurses who who have been doing the right thing all these years. There's 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 this... You know, nobody sets out, no, no doctor or nurse wakes up in the morning and says, oh, today's, today's the day I'm going to cut off the wrong leg. Mm-hmm. No, it's never intentional. These, these, these errors, these the harm is never intentional. But you know what's intentional? Lying to a family, falsifying records, forcing us to go get attorneys just to answer basic medical questions. That's intentional. And in our case, I would say, I can only speak for our family and for me. Those those harms, those intentional harms are as more, they're more toxic and more poisonous and more corrosive than the stuff that injured my mother. Mm-hmm. We could have sucked it up. If when my mom woke up out of that coma, we, if we could have told her the truth, I mean, think of me. My, my mom says, What happened to me? I can't, I can't talk. I can't walk. I can't do anything. And I, I gotta tell her, I, I don't know, mom. I don't know if I would have been able to, she could not believe 
that her beloved Dr. Bauer in this hospital had failed her. She never, she never could get that in her head, you know. She didn't really want to do a lawsuit because she didn't want to upset Dr. Bauer, didn't want to upset the hospital. I don't want to, I don't want to sue Steve. Can't they just take care of me? Why do we got to go to court? Wow. It's all been avoided just by the simple, like a third grader knows the right thing to do. It's the, we all know what it is. It's our conscience. It's our soul. It's who we are. It's our guts. That is not difficult stuff. I mean, it's the moment, but there would have never been a lawsuit. I would have never sued if they would have just been nice and, and kind and just took responsibility for it, took ownership for it. Own it. Yeah. We all know this. And pay for the care that she needs now. And don't, so she doesn't have to drain her entire life savings over an error that she played no role in. And mm-hmm. yeah, you know, in the training in medical schools, it's, there's just this undercurrent of you're not allowed to not know, you're not allowed to make mistakes, you're not, you know, and so they they just develop these belief systems. And when they're faced with a mistake, the reflex action is hide it, don't say it just, I mean, and and it's, it's just going in the entirely wrong direction. And, you know, in, in the spiritual world, you know, there's a statement that defense is the first act of war. And so it's literally like war. I mean, you basically went through, through war and it was unnecessary. So I know, um, Sujan's trying to to get back to work. And I, I think I promised less than an hour, but I, I literally could talk about this all day because it's so important. I would like to wrap up. I really appreciate both of your time. And I know I've gone a little bit over. I would like to wrap up with both of you sharing what your hope is um, for for the future with with creating this documentary, the platform, the sharing like this on this podcast. What is your What is your hope of change for the future? Jen, you want to go first? You want, want me to go? Yeah. So, I mean, this is what we hear over and over again, that this movie is a must-see for all healthcare professionals and students. And I want to spread that mission to different schools. Um, I know Steve has been doing these screenings, but what can come out of the interaction. I mean, I think our story is worth telling. Steve and I um, have now a part of an activist group, Patients for Patient Safety US. We speak up for patients and um, family caregivers at policy level. And I think that's a that's a something that needs to be told that something beautiful out of tragedy can come out as a result. Um, and I think it can change people's perspective. It can change, you know, future generation who's going to be doctors, pharmacists, and nurses. They're going to be practicing in totally different way when they see this movie, the ethical, um, responsibility, what they're swearing when they're wearing the white coat in the ceremony, that's when we swear, we're going to do no harm for patients. Right. So I think it is important for this movie to spread and you be used as a tool to teach multiple different ways, right? The collaboration. What if there was a pharmacist who was able to intervene, right? Before the surgery. What if there's a, you know, dispatch system or team that gets dispatched when something really goes wrong at any point in patient's care in a hospital, 
what if there's a communication expert who can coach different healthcare professionals and how to make the apology and how to conquer the fear of, you know, doing the right thing. Um, there are so many things that can be taught through this movie. And I just, and when I saw this movie, it was just, and Steve can tell you about that. Like so many people will come and say, this is like something that I wanted to tell about my story. And, you know, this is something and um, that can resonate with so many patients and caregivers. So I, I am in a mission to spread our stories to schools and healthcare professionals with Steve. Thank you, Sujin. I love that you're so invested in this. So thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you. Steve, how about I, I, you? Is where I want to say something, uh, uh, another part of the story that never gets told. And really, it's it's not my part of the story to tell, Sujen, but I'm going to I'm going to do it anyway, because she's so modest. Right. So uh, this thing happens. We we meet. We have this profound moment at this uh, at this boot camp and we become friends. And she wants to meet my mother. And um, she's just, you know, this is like she's just like everything that the healthcare system needs to be. Right. And I, at that point, I had lost a lot of hope right before the film had come out. I, I pretty much had spent all my hope. But then once the, the medical community started reacting to it and the families and the patients and, and uh, we started hearing all the feedback, it started to fill my, fill my tank uh, uh, with hope again. But then like meeting uh, like Dr. Mayer and, and Dr. McDonald at this, at this boot camp, and then Su Jin. But then this is Su Jin always, she, she, she took it one step further. This is, this is why I, she's so, Few people do this. Like they, they'll go for a while and then, you know, they hit a wall or whatever. Sujin keeps going. Mm -hmm. So what she did was she asked if she could write uh, the CEO of Aurora after she saw the movie. Because she said, did you ever hear from the hospital? I said, no. I haven't. We haven't heard from them in 11 years. Wow. And she said, well, how about if I write them? I go, you go, girl. Good, <laughs> Good luck. And Sujin wrote the hospital. She wrote the CEO and she, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but basically she just wanted them to know that uh, they should reach out to us and, and, and you know, consider apologizing. Wow. And Eugene, remember she was working at Aurora, right? This is an Aurora employee. Mm -hmm. By the way, 70,000 Aurora employees, we know for a fact, saw this movie. So, and we know that, so Sujin writes the CEO and you know what happens next? Nothing. No response. No response. And you know what Sujin does? She quits Aurora. Amazing. She, and she called me up. She said, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to resign from Aurora. I go, whoa, 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 slow down. I don't want you to, you know, you got your family, you got kids, you know, you got a career. Think about this. And she said, I'm out. I cannot work for, a, I cannot work for an organization that conducts themselves like this. And I thought, you know, wow, this is exactly the opposite of everything that I've just experienced in the last decade. Mm -hmm. so, you know, so, you what know, this a sad state of affairs that a CEO speaking to an, a current active employee about a concern, there's not even a, an enough of an integrity and respect to, to respond. Amazing, Sujin. Um, yeah, exactly. That's, yeah, that's what we need. Yeah. 
that's what we need. We need people to to make the difficult decisions because it's right, just because it's right. It's the right thing to do. And if if we had more of that, there would be an a foundation of accountability just organically. <laughs> like if we don't do the right thing, everybody's going to leave because they don't feel like this this institution has integrity. So yeah, beautiful. Thank you for including that. Sorry about my dog. <laughs> <laughs> your your dog's just like, yes, my mom rocks. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, any anything I didn't ask about any part of this that you want to share before we wrap up? So Jen, is there anything for no, you? I think um cover pretty pretty much well. I mean, <laughs> um Go ahead. I'm sorry. Steve was the one who actually involved me and pulled me into Patients for Patient Safety Activists group. Um, so if I didn't meet Steve, I don't think I would be doing more activism work like I'm doing right now. And and that's another thing. Like your entire career can change by interacting the right way with the patients and caregivers. And if I didn't meet Steve, like, I don't think I would be practicing the way I, I am practicing. So I am so grateful that I met Steve and Judy, and I was able to meet Judy when she was alive. I was able to give the apology in person. Um, and, um, you know, you know, I wanted to make the sad story a, a different different twist, uh, a little pleasant, happy ending that it can be, it can be, um, it's not all downhill at that as much as that people fear. Um, I think that fear of apology is, what if I'm gonna lose a job? What if I'm gonna get in trouble? And we've seen this in uh, Rodanda Vaught case too. Um, that unfortunate tragedy that happened. But when when the truth, the God knows the truth, right? The truth has to come out. And I think honoring the truth is always, always the answer for me. So thank you, Beautiful. Steve. Anything else, Steve, that you'd like to share? Well, well yeah, you probably have seen I can go on for... <laughs> but the one thing I, I do know is that, you know, the, you know, people like yourself, Claudia and Sujin, the world needs you. I mean, I, 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 this is what keeps me going. You know, it, it, there's a lot of bad news out there in the world and there's a lot of bad news out there in healthcare, but it, 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 it really can be, it's, it's, it's stuff that can be fixed and handled and mitigated. It's, I really believe this. I keep getting, you know, people say, well, Steve, it's really hard. I, say, I really don't think it's that hard. Mm -hmm. I mean, it does take some guts and it does take some courage. And, you know, maybe uh, as Dr. Mayer says, Sujin, you know this. I mean, Sujin practiced it. If you're at a, if you're at a, if you're at a, a, a organization that does not practice uh, uh, the ethics and, and the, the morality of, of healthcare, like if we can't agree on how people should be treated in healthcare, you know, right. if, there, if there's organizations out there that aren't fitting with your moral and ethical uh, standards, then you know what you got to move on. And mm -hmm. and I believe that if if people move on, 
enough employees move on or they start to leave and patients, the word gets out. I mean, you know, I can tell you right now that I've heard from thousands of Aurora people and most of them are scared to death. They've all given their condolences to me and their, their apologies, but it's always been privately and it's always been anonymously because everyone's afraid. You know, stop being afraid. What if it was your mother? Mm-hmm. Was your, what if it was your, your daughter or your wife? Or what if it was you? Would you be scared? I don't think you would be. It's, it's, it, there's no difference. Because you know what? We were from a medical family. We knew how to navigate certain roads in the medical. And, and we, it still happened to us. If it can happen to my mother, you know, it can happen to anybody. And, and I would just, the last thing I would say is, you know, there's been so many great things that have come out of this film and I give my mom full credit for it because as you saw in the film, Claudia, my mom was always open to showing, you know, warts and all. She was, she wanted to tell her story. She wanted people to learn from it. And one of the, there were so many great things that have happened. uh, But one of the best has been, there's this leapfrog group in in Washington, DC. they're a nonprofit, nonpartisan, nonpolitical organization. They grade hospitals. And uh, Leah Binder, the head of the hospital there, had seen Bleed Out and fell in love with my mother. And they were going to open up the first National Patient Safety Institute in America. And she asked me if we could name it after your mother. Oh, I love that. That's exactly what they did last year. The Judy Burroughs Education Institute is two blocks from the White House. Wow. Goosebumps. Yeah, she's my mother. The school teacher is now the school. And... I'm, I'm with Sue Jin on this. You know, we've had enough screenings over the last several years to know that for whatever reason, and I, I give my mom full credit for it, that whatever reason, when you see our story and you see the personal story, which branches out into a universal story, which affects all of us, is that this, my mom, the, my mom's story, I, 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 we had a, a Mayo Clinic kid come up to me recently, an oncologist, he looks like he was 14 years old. <laughs> I mean, literally, I thought, who is this young kid? He's like, I'm a, I'm a cancer doctor at the Mayo Clinic. I'm like, okay, <laughs> really, really? Uh, okay, I'm good luck to you because you look like you're 14. He says, I thank you for making the movie. And I think, I got to get this right. He said, watching your mother go through that has forever changed the way I'm going to practice medicine. Wow. And that not only filled my heart, that is where I agree with Sujin that our goal is to get every medical student, every nursing student, every medical school, nursing school in America to sit down and watch this movie only because I've seen it now. The conversation that takes place directly after the movie mm-hmm. are the, that's where the real change happens right there. It's not our movie. It's what people feel about it, especially the leaders of the hospitals and all of the risk managers all the way down to the people who are cleaning. I mean, it, 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 it's because we're all in it together. I mean, it, it sounds so cliche, but it, it's we're all in it. We're all in the same boat. It's 100% true. It, one of my favorite quotes is from Ram Das, and it's, we are all just walking each other home. And your mom is literally walking the entire medical system home to where it needed to always be. And as a teacher in a difficult, as you described, a very difficult you know, inner city area, she is now a teacher of a very difficult path right now um, in yeah. ways she never, she never anticipated being. And what a, what an amazing celebration and legacy. So thank you both for being here and sharing this story. I'm, I'm definitely team Judy. I will be 
sharing this as often and as on many platforms as I can. I'm on an advisory board at a nursing school. I So I will ripple affect this as much as I possibly can. And I appreciate both of you coming on today. Yeah, that was a real gift of what you just said about my mom walking people home. That I, I'm going to, I will give you full credit, but I'm going to steal that. So thank you. <laughs> steal, steal away, steal away. It's, uh, I mean, it literally, it's so applicable to so, so many things in our life. And, and I think it just brings us all back to we're, we're humans at the end of the day. Let's just remember that, you know, why are we at war over things that don't need to be a war? So thank you both. Thank you for doing what you do. And thank you for having us. And thank you for, uh, letting us share our little part of the world. And again, I feel like I have been left speechless. This story really hits home. It hits to the heart. It hits to the soul. And I hope that you all have found many insights in this interview that you can apply to your profession, that you can apply to your personal life. And I also really hope that you share this episode. If you haven't shared any of my previous episodes, this is the one to prioritize sharing. I really appreciate your time. I know this was lengthier than most of my episodes previously, but I think it was so necessary. Every minute was full of information that really can be life-changing for others. So a huge thank you to Steve and Sujin for taking the time to share their journeys and give us all a path to take this as far as we need to take it and impact as many people as we can with it. Until next time, my friends.